Again, church. I forgot to mention, we do have our college study Friday night, 7 p.m. Oh, go team, never mind. College study is going to the go team, so that's why I didn't mention it, because I knew that. No, I didn't. If you have your Bibles, we are in 1 John chapter 3. We're going to continue where we left off with verse 16. We're going to go to the end of the chapter, verse 24. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and Greg and Joey, they have Bibles in their hands. They'll bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us as we hit verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, through God's Word. Someone's phone? No. Start texting people. No. <laughs> All right, starting in verse 16, John writes, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. We also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, as he gave his commandment. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. The title of my message this morning is a heart check. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, this opportunity to gather together in this place, Holy Spirit, we thank you for being here. And as we look at the subject of where our hearts are at, we pray, Lord, that we would have open ears to hear what you have to say to us this morning. Father, we pray that anyone that has joined us that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again this morning, would you especially speak to their heart, show them their need to get saved, to be right with you. Father, bless our time together, we pray. Bless our kids as they're downstairs being ministered to, Lord. Uh, that you would be glorified in all that we do this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How great it is to be free from condemnation. It happened to me while I was cruising the internet and this page came up. Chocolate is good for you. Yes, amen. The article goes on to say there's seven benefits of dark chocolate. Seven, it's rich in minerals. Six, it improves brain function. I never knew that. Five, it lowers blood pressure. I can go off my blood pressure medicine. Uh, <laughs> number four, it reduces inflammation. Number three, it's raised, it raises good cholesterol. Number two, it helps protect your skin. The number one answer, dark chocolate is good for you. It makes you happy and feel better. <laughs> I wish I would have found that out years ago. No more condemnation. Actually, the greater blessing is to be free from condemnation spiritually. When our heart is free from condemnation, we have confidence towards God and effectiveness in our prayers and a right heart before God. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. If you're taking notes, we're going to see three things. Number one, a condemning heart. Number two, a confident heart. And number three, a complete heart. Number one, a condemning heart. 
Now, I am sure that your heart has condemned you at some point in your life, either fairly or unfairly. Now, it's nice to know that the Lord never makes a mistake in judging unfairly or fairly or not fairly. He's always right. His judgments are always sure. Warren Wiersbe put it this way. No Christian should treat sin lightly, but no Christian should be harder on himself than God is. Yet I think that there are those that almost take a perverse pleasure in like the self-examination and self-condemnation. Oh man, I'm just, I'm just a horrible person. I, just, I don't know, man. I just, I'm just horrible, horrible. So much so they're robbed of any joy and peace. Well, if you recall, John, when he wrote this little epistle, he wrote it not only against a group of people known as the Gnostics, but also for the church. See, some of these folks were very confused. Some of them were getting very discouraged, wondering about their own walk with God, wondering about their future. Some of them were living under this guilt and condemnation that these Gnostics were placing on them, spewing out this false doctrine and spreading lies about their walks with the Lord and making them just feel terrible about themselves. They were confused. They were feeling guilty. They were feeling condemned. Their conscience was getting the best of them. So John here is writing to pull them out of this and to assure their hearts. Look at verse 19. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Now when John says by this we know, the obvious question would be by what? What is he talking about? Well, see, he's referring to what comes before this. It's a reference point. This takes us back to verse 16. He says, by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. See, John begins first and foremost in verse 16 by expressing just how much God loves you. So whether your heart is condemning you or or whether your heart is, is right with God, either way, God loves you. That changes nothing of that. God loves you. Love, love is, is, is it's at its highest with Jesus. I mean, Jesus loving a world full of sinners. It doesn't get any better than that. Loving to the extent that he was willing to lay down his life so that those that deserve hell might have life and that more abundantly. That is love in action. Jesus laying down his life for us. And so John says, because he laid down his life for us, we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That doesn't necessarily mean that we need to die for one another, but what it does mean is that we should be willing to lay our life down in living for others. In other words, each and every day we should be looking for ways to give of ourselves for the benefit of others. Then John goes on in verse 17 and 18. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. I mean, think about this. The eyes of Jesus never overlooked one person who was in need. In fact, Jesus never performed one miracle to supply any need of his own. He didn't go, you know, a Big Mac sounds really good right about now. I know they haven't been invented yet, but man, a Big Mac, some French fries, some ketchup and some salt and a, and a large chocolate malt. Poof, you know. He could have done that. I kind of want this. But he didn't. He never performed one miracle to supply any need of his own. Yet he defied all of nature when someone else was in need. 
He fed 5,000 people off of five loaves of bread and two fish. Jesus was never too tired. He was never too busy, never too hungry to minister to a needy person. In fact, in John chapter 4, Jesus was hungry. Jesus was weary. So he sent his disciples into town to get some food and bring it back while he waited by this well. Because there at the well, he encountered a woman there and she came to know him as her Lord and as her Savior. When the disciples returned, they brought him food, but he didn't eat. And he said to them he had bread to eat that they know nothing of, speaking of leading this woman to salvation. You see, John here is saying, listen, if God has blessed you, which he has blessed all of us here, and we see a brother or sister in need, and we close our hearts to them, how can we say that you're like Jesus? How is that proof that you even know the Lord? You know, John never separates loving God and loving each other. And he sees the fact that you love other Christians, the fact that you would sacrifice your life for another Christian, and loving God as one and the same. They're inseparable to him. And then in verse 18, John uses that enduring term again. Remember, he's in his 90s, maybe 100, and so everybody under him is a little children. He says in verse 18, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. To love in word means simply to talk about a need, but to love indeed means to do something about meeting that need. So you may think, well, because you have talked about a need or even prayed about it, hey, I've done my duty, I've prayed for him. But love involves more than just words. It's a call for sacrificial deeds. To love in tongue is the opposite of to love in truth. To love in tongue means to, to love insincerely. To love in truth means to love a person generally from the heart and not just from the tongue. Now that brings us back to verse 19. And by this, what we just looked at, we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Again, one of the reasons John wrote this epistle was so that those that were discouraged, those that were weakened believers on the receiving end, would know that they know that they belong to God and that these Gnostics would not be getting the upper hand on them. In fact, John writes over in chapter 5, verse 13, These things I have written to you who believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. You know that John uses the word know some 30 times in his epistle? He doesn't say, I hope that you know. Uh, You might know. No Christian should ever say, I hope I'm going to make it to heaven. You ought to be able to say, I know without a doubt, I have assurance that, 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 that I will go to heaven. My, my heart is right before him. Charles Spurgeon used to say, if you're not sure you're going to heaven, how dare you go to sleep tonight? I like that. Now the word John uses here in verse 19, to know means to know by experience. In other words, there is something tangible that, that I could point to. That is how I know I belong to him. And then there's a word, assure here, we shall assure our hearts before him. That word means to persuade or to pacify or to win the confidence of. Some have translated it to tranquilize, to soothe the alarm of the heart. So John is saying we can know by experience something tangible that we belong to God. And with that knowledge, we can tranquilize, we can calm our hearts in his presence. Soothe the alarm that goes off that would cause us to wonder, am I really saved? Am I really a Christian? 
See, we can have that peace. You know, peace is something that Jesus often spoke of. And if you're a child of God, you have a birthright to that peace. Jesus put it this way in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Every one of us here this morning has at least one kind of peace. But what troubles me is if, if, if that perhaps not all of you have both kinds of peace. The peace I give you and the peace I leave with you, Jesus said. All of you that are Christians, that are believers here this morning, you have the peace with God. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You're, not, you're no longer an enemy of God. You have peace with Him, and you've been bought with a price. You're together. You're not fighting Him. In fact, you're living for Him. But not all of us experience the peace of God. That, that tranquil resting place where you just know that there's nothing between you and the Lord and you have confidence in His presence, assurance in His presence. Not all have that peace of God. In fact, one of the most common problems I I see with many believers today is a condemning heart. Have you ever had one of those? A conscience that just robs you of your peace and you're not quite sure where you stand with God. You're not quite sure if He loves you. That may be a condemning heart. Well, John covers that. Look at verse 20. He says, For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Now, you can take that word heart out and you can, uh, for the sake of understanding, replace it with the word conscience. For if our conscience condemns us, God is greater than our conscience and knows all things. What is the conscience? Well, it's that that inner man, that inner you that that, goes on inside your head. The story I read of Sir Conan Doyle, he's the late author of the Sherlock Holmes novels. He was a bit of a practical joker. One day he decided to play a joke on 12 of his closest friends. So he sent out an anonymous letter to each of them with only these words in it. Flee at once, all is discovered. Now he thought they would figure it out and that it was him and they would call him up and they would have this, this good laugh over the whole thing. But instead, within 24 hours, all 12 of his friends left the country. I mean, that's called having a guilty conscience. I mean, what if you got an anonymous email? Flee at once, all is discovered. Would you run? I mean, is there something you're afraid of that would come out? Do you have a guilty conscience right now? John says if our hearts or if our conscience condemns us, God is greater than our hearts, our consciences. The word for condemn, the Greek word is Katagonosko, which means to find fault with, to blame, to accuse, or get this, to torment. Have you ever been tormented by an accusing conscience? I think the truth is that, that sometimes our hearts have condemned us at some point in our lives, either fairly or unfairly. You see, John is saying if you really love the Lord, if you're practicing loving the brethren, if you're walking indeed in the truth, then you can have an assurance that you have a right relationship with God. If not, then there could be a legitimate reason why your heart is condemning you. Perhaps you are grieving the Holy Spirit in your life and you need to repent. So how can I tell the difference if the Holy Spirit is is convicting me or if I'm just condemning myself? I think that's a difficult thing to discern. One way is to see the direction it's pushing you. If it's leading you back to the Lord, then it's the Holy Spirit. 
If it's driving you away from the Lord, it's either yourself or it's the devil. Because sometimes, sometimes our heart is absolutely right in its insensate throbbing and guilt. I think of Edgar Allan Poe's uh, uh, poem, The Telltale Heart. The murderer, after retiring that evening, couldn't sleep because he kept hearing the heart of the victim as it pounded in his chest. Now, it wasn't really the victim's heart he was hearing. Come to find out it was his own heart, and it kept him awake, and the guilt of his condition finally led him into revealing that he was the murderer. That's the power of a guilty conscience. Listen, nobody knows you as well as you know yourself. You know your deepest thoughts and feelings. You know what's really going on in your relationship with with your family, with God. You are the first to know if something's bugging you. You are the first to know if you're not praying, if you're not reading your Bible, if you're not spending time with the Lord, if you're not walking in obedience. Because the more that you grow in grace, the more that you grow in the knowledge of the truth, the more you're aware of your spiritual condition before God. Now, for some, as you read the Bible, as you see God's standard and examine your heart, we can become plagued with a sense of failure. And that, in part, I think, is because I believe sincere Christians, people who take their walk seriously with God, will be plagued by a sensitive heart. David wrote this in Psalm 40, verse 12. For innumerable evils have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I'm not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head. Therefore, my heart fails me. I think every Christian has this problem. It's as if there are these three competing voices going on in our heads. It's kind of a trial with our heart as accuser, ourselves as the defendant, and God as the judge. But see, we need to remember, we need to understand that our hearts are not infallible. Our hearts don't always know what is right. Jeremiah put it this way, 17.9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The only reasonable answer to that is God. See, the world will tell us, oh, just follow your heart. Have you heard that phrase before? Just just follow your heart. It's like the other phrase we keep hearing over and over again. Just follow the science. I'm not going to follow the science when the science is wrong. And the same way, you can't follow your heart if your heart is wrong. I think of Jiminy Cricket that sang to Pinocchio. When you get in trouble, you know, and you don't know right from wrong, give a little whistle, give a little whistle, and always let your conscience be your guide. No! I don't care how much you whistle. No, no. Why? Because you may have a greedy heart. You may have a lustful heart. You may have a, 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 an emotional heart. You know, and, and, and the list is endless of the kind of heart that you should not follow. Let me tell you again in the strongest way possible. Do not follow your wicked and deceitful heart. Why? We think about this. How many people have followed their heart into a relationship that wasn't of the Lord and ended in divorce? How many people have followed their heart into buying that new car that you can't afford or that new house or leaving your wife or leaving your husband because you say, well, I just feel in my heart it's the right thing to do. Please, don't follow your heart. But maybe that's not your problem. You're not following your heart, but you're still, your heart is still condemning you. You know, there are times that, that, that I expect more out of myself than God does. And your conscience comes along, your heart comes along and says, you lazy bum, you haven't been reading your Bible enough. You haven't been praying enough. You haven't been going to church enough. You haven't been doing this, and you've not been doing that. And Yeah, but, but I prayed today, yeah, but it wasn't long enough. 
There are times when my conscience will come along and say, you're not doing enough for God. You need to be more motivated. You need, you need to do more. Now, what do I do at that point? Continue to live under condemnation? Do I ignore it? No. Remember, John said in verse 19, by this, we know we can assure our hearts before God. In other words, we, he say we can have assurance that we are no longer condemned. Two ways, he shows us. First, by the fact that the habit of your life is governed by righteousness, that you're sacrificially uh, loving those around you. Now, that doesn't mean that you're perfect, but it does mean that the overall consistency of your life is that of self-sacrificial love and obedience to his commands and living righteously. So every now and then when your conscience lies to you and says, you're a horrible person, you're not really saved, you're not really a Christian, you're a faker, you're a poser. You have something tangible to point to, something actually in your life that you can say, no, there's proof, you know. You can see it. You can say, I see over the course of my life that I have lived self-sacrificially, that I have loved my brothers and sisters in the Lord. I've been living in obedience to the best I can to the commands of God. And though I'm not perfect, I still have that assurance that I am a child of God. You see, that, that's a whole lot better than just a feeling or claiming you're a Christian. There's something tangible you can point to. Where you can say, I've seen my brother and sister in need and I have helped them. Or as John says there, I'm, I'm loving indeed and in truth so I can have an assurance that, hey, I'm doing okay. Now please, don't get this confused with salvation by works. That's not saying, see, I'm saved because I do these things. No, you're not saved by works. By grace alone, through faith alone. But once you are saved, the works that are produced by the faith you have in Christ, those works verify and prove that God has entered your life, that God has changed your life. That is what gives you the assurance. So when those doubts come, you can say, be gone, doubts. <laughs> be gone, insecurities. I know that I'm not perfect, but the general consistencies of my life is one of righteousness and love. Then the second thing that to do when a condemning heart comes your way is in verse 20, and that is to remember that God is greater than our heart and knows all things. See, God knows that I've truly been born again, that all of my sins were dealt with upon the cross when Jesus died upon the cross, and I gave my life to him. God also knows the desires of my heart to please him and to walk in his ways. God knows those things. So since God is greater than our hearts, and God knows all these things. I just need to believe that God, when he says in his word in Romans 8, 1, that there is no condemnation of those that live in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. See, that's the place where God wants us this morning. Realizing that if you're condemning your, your heart, I'm just saying God is greater than your heart. Listen, God works through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, not through condemnation. In fact, Paul says in his letter later on in chapter 8, verse 34, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. He doesn't condemn. He makes intercession for us. God does not want to condemn you. He wants to give you that assurance that you've been forgiven, that you belong to him. So again, the next time your conscience says you're condemned, realize that God doesn't condemn you. We say, oh, but, but God doesn't really know me like I know me. If God really knew me, he would condemn me. Really? I mean, he knows the number of every hair on your head. For some of us, that's not a large number. Um, but 
He knows every single thought you have had this week. Every single sinful whim that crossed your heart. God is omniscient. There's no new information that God's learning about you. There's no surprises. Nothing that catches God off guard. Some gossiper can't come before God and say, God, let me tell you what Tom did this week. No, God knows all things. He knows what you did last week. He knows what you will do tomorrow. He knows what you did last summer. But He knows what you're thinking right now. He knows you're thinking, what did I do last summer? I just, I don't know. God knows it all. Which could either be a comfort or it could be terrifying this morning. Because there are those that come into the church and they got that church face on. But God knows your heart is far from Him. God knows whether or not your relationship is fake or real. I mean, if it's real, man, it's great, a great comfort to know that God knows all things. Because again, although you messed up, and although we fall, and although God knows the consistency of life is one of righteousness and love for one another, your aim is to please Him. He knows that. God is greater than our hearts. He knows all things, John says. And listen, you can appeal to God on those terms. Peter did it. Remember when Jesus came to Peter after uh, his resurrection? Peter had failed the Lord. He denied the Lord three times. And there's Peter and Jesus. They're standing on the shore having this meeting once again. And Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, oh, yes, Lord, uh, I love you. And Jesus says, well, then feed my sheep. Jesus asked him again, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, tend my lambs. Then he asked him a third time, Peter, do you love me? And I love Peter's response. Lord, you know all things, and you know that I love you. See, Peter appealed to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He's saying, Lord, you know what I've done, but you also know the depth of my heart, and you know that I love you. You see deep inside of me, and you know that I failed you, but you also know that I love you. See, Peter appealed to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Listen, the next time you feel condemned by your conscience, look to Jesus, who knows all things, who's a gracious God, a forgiving God, who if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so when your conscience condemns you, appeal to God like Peter did. God, you know my heart. God, you know all things. I appeal to you. Don't let my conscience rob me of my peace and joy you want me to have. You know, Lord, I love you. And and move on. Sadly, I've met a lot of people who say, well, I brought this before the Lord and I've asked Him for forgiveness and I know that God loves me, but I just haven't been able to forgive myself. Listen, if God has forgiven you and you don't receive that forgiveness but just keep feeling guilty and condemning yourself over and over again, then you're placing yourself over God and His authority to forgive. And what right do I have to say I can't forgive myself when God says I forgive you? You don't. Now this brings us to our second point, a confident heart. Look at verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. That word confidence means freedom of speech, fearless, confident, cheerful, courage in His presence. When you're living the way God wants you to live, when you're loving your brothers and sisters in a sacrificial kind of way, there is confidence, there's freedom of speech in your access to God. 
read a story about a man who was up in the mountains in a national park wandering around the trail he was hiking on and it was just enjoying the day, the grandeur around him, the trees and the sky. Just a beautiful day. He lost track of time. The afternoon became evening. It started to get really dark. It was closing in on him. He's kind of feeling his way down the mountain because he couldn't see and he lost his footing. He fell onto this ledge and he's hanging on this cliff, on this branch of this, this tree for dear life. He couldn't see a thing. Thought all hope is gone and, 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 and there was no other trailblazers around, you know, and he cried for help, but nobody heard him. He waited for what seemed to be like hours holding his grip. He knew that he could hold no longer. He knew he had to let go because his strength was, was failing. So he finally, finally let go. And he plunged all the way down six inches to the ground below him. Six inches from safety. But he lived in terror. You know, there are a lot of folks, there are a lot of people living in fear today without confidence towards God. I love that, that Pastor, uh, or not Pastor, Dennis Deck, he was actually here this morning, first service, uh, from last Sunday evening. He had that acronym for fear, false evidence appearing real. You know, since the, the beginning of this whole COVID-19, we've seen a surge in fake news exploiting public fear, uncertainty, We've seen both misinformation, that is false information shared by misinformed or misguided people, and we've seen disinformation, which is also false information shared with the sole purpose of deliberately misleading people. Either way, it has been a way to produce fear in Christians and non-Christians alike. And we're going to get to the subject of fear next week and how to handle that. But you see, a conscience not controlled by Christ it's not going to be trustworthy. A conscience not controlled by Christ will give in to all sorts of fears. All sorts of fears. But when you have a clear conscience towards God, you can rest in the fact that He is in control of your life and you can have that confidence before Him. As a writer in the book of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That word boldly implies with confidence. Not rudely, not dictating what God should or shouldn't do or demanding from God. Rather, it's a confidence that I can come before God anytime and find that grace and mercy in time of need. I don't have to be afraid. I have a clear conscience before God. See, when our heart is free from condemnation, we can have confidence towards God and on top of that, have an effective prayer life. That's what John tells us next. Look at verse 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. And this is an incredible statement. It's like a blank check with unlimited assets to back it up. I mean, this becomes a kind of definition for prayer. See, prayer is more than just talking to God. It's specific conversation about specific things that are going on in your life. I think one of the reasons our prayers may be hindered is because of that condemning heart that you may have. Yet if you have a confident heart and still are not getting results in prayers, maybe, maybe because you're not praying more specifically. James tells us you have not because you ask not. I think we would have a lot more of our prayers answered and, and, and get a lot more from our relationship and fellowship with God if we would simply do what Jesus said to do in Matthew 7, 7. Ask and it shall be given to you, and uh, seek you shall find, knock and it shall be opened to you. 
This is the promise of Jesus. If we ask the Father, God will give to us an answer. But there is a condition. It's the second half of verse 22 here. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because, he writes, we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. See, if you want to have a confident heart towards God when you pray, then you have to be living right. God cannot bless wrongful or sinful living. If you're living in sin, you cannot expect God to answer any prayer other than that of repentance. If you're praying, oh Lord, would you just bless me and my girlfriend as we're living together in this apartment? God says, I can't hear you. Why? Because you're living in sin. But in order to have that confident heart towards God, there needs to be no unconfessed sin. That is, if you know that something is wrong in your life, then you take it before the Lord and you confess it and you make those necessary changes to not be in sin. That's what is implied here when he says we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Not only keep them, but we do those things. We make those changes. It's a prerequisite to effective prayer, to answered prayer. In fact, David put it this way in Psalm 66, 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. I read a, a story of an evangelist that came to town that, that, and he was preaching on the Christian home. And after the meeting was over, a father came to him and said, I, I've been praying for my prodigal son for years and God has not answered my prayer. The evangelist read Psalm 66, 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And then he said to the, to the man, be honest with yourself. Be honest to the Lord. Is there anything between you and another Christian that needs to be settled? Well, the father hesitated for a moment then said, yes, I'm afraid there is. I've harbored resentment in my heart against another man in this church. Then go make it right, counseled the evangelist. And he prayed with the man. Before the night was over, the father saw his prodigal son come back to the Lord. I mean, if I'm holding on to some sin, if I refuse to confess it, the Lord will not hear me. You can pray until you're blue in the face, but he will not hear you. But if we're keeping his commandments, if we're doing those things that are pleasing in God's sight, guess what? God will bless us. Now, let me make this perfectly clear. We don't keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight, so he will bless us. We keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight because he has blessed us. So how do we have a confident heart, a heart free of condemnation? Again, by loving the Lord, loving his people, not in word or in tongue, but in deed and truth, and by keeping his commandments. Which brings us to our third and final point. John tells us the result of having a heart that's not condemning, the result of keeping his commandments, doing those things that are pleasing in his sight, we will have a confident heart that leads to number three, a complete heart. Look at verse 23 and 24. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Notice the first part of the commandment is the source for the second part. No one can love the way they should love until they believe on the name of the Son of Jesus Christ. The second part of the commandment is a sign that you obeyed the first. Because Jesus said in John 14, 6, And I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, speaking of the Holy Spirit. 
When you're born again and you repent of your sin, God washes away all your sin, all the guilt, all the shame is taken away. He gives you that Holy Spirit in your, in your life and, and, and empowers you to love as God calls you to love, to abide in Him as God calls you to do. Now John makes it clear that there's this mutual abiding here. Abide in Jesus Christ, abide in Him, and He will abide in you. Jesus put it this way in John 15:7: If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and that shall be done for you. I like this word abide because it's important. It means to be at home in. In other words, we need to replace a condemning heart with a confident heart that God is at home in our hearts, abiding in us by His Holy Spirit. That, in turn, produces a complete heart. Listen, I think the greatest benefit of being a Christian, even more than confidence, even more than answered prayer, is knowing that I'm close with God, I have this intimate relationship with Him, that there's nothing standing in the way between me and Him and the relationship that I have with Him. Even though there may be times I may not see Him working in my life, I know that He's there because I have this relationship with Him and there's no roadblock of disobedience, or, or, or distance caused by sin, just this close intimacy with the Lord. I know that Christ is at home in my heart. Listen, if you feel far from God, guess who moved? God didn't alienate himself from you. You did from God. I want to close with this. I've always liked the comparison to our lives as homes and Christ being comfortable in our homes because it really helps us to see where we're at with the Lord. If Christ was in your home, in your office, and started looking around, maybe he comes in your office, then he sees your computer there. He goes, clicks it, he picks it on, he clicks on the internet, you know, oh, I hope I cleared my history. Oh, no. Would that make you a little bit uncomfortable? How about if he went into your living room, turned on the TV, shows, brings up Netflix, and you go, oh, that's not my Netflix account. I, I don't know. I, I would never watch that. Let's go to a different room. How about the kitchen? There's potato chips and cookies and candy and soda pop. <laughs> Lord says, how is that taking care of your body that I've blessed you with? Look at some tomatoes and carrots over here, Lord, look. Maybe he looks over in the living room. sees the Bible sitting there and the inch of dust sitting on top of it. Let me ask you, if Jesus came knocking at the door of your house right now and he came walking through room by room, would he feel at home? in your life? Would there be anything that you would be ashamed of, that you'd be embarrassed by? And, and then maybe you should have a guilty conscience. If so, confess it before the Lord and make your heart right before Him. I'm not saying this to condemn us. There's no condemnation of those that are in Christ Jesus. My point is, this is a heart check. Where are we at with the Lord? Is Christ at home in my heart? Am I loving my brothers and sisters in Christ in deed and in truth? Am I helping and meeting their needs? How is my prayer life going? Have I confessed my sin, my failings? Have I hidden God's word in my heart? If you can say yes and good to those questions, then you do not have to listen to a condemning heart. Ignore it. You can have a confident heart and a complete heart knowing that you are right with, with the Lord. But you see, all of this comes back down to abiding in Christ, surrendering your life completely to Jesus Christ is the answer that will affect your life. He will give you the confidence that you are indeed a child of God. 
Listen, when I gave my life to the Lord Jesus some 42 years ago, six months old, and I, I uh, no. <laughs> when I confessed my sin, when I surrendered my life to him, I'm here to tell you, the sense of guilt was gone. The condemnation was gone. The burden was immediately lifted off of my shoulders. From that point on, I knew that I had the confidence that if I died, I would go to heaven. But you see, here's the problem. Man does not like to admit that we're sinners, that we need to turn from our sin and turn to Christ. Man doesn't want to admit that we're in rebellion against God. And yet that is the heart of the problem that we face today in our society. See, we're rather, instead of calling sin, sin, we'd rather call it um, you know, imperfections, weaknesses, mistakes. Oh, it's just an, an error in judgment. See, those are the terms that are socially acceptable and almost everyone identifies with them. But an outright acknowledgement of guilt before a holy God, 100% acceptance of responsibility for a wrongdoing, that runs against our grain. We certainly are not seeing it in the political realm. We certainly cannot expect it with the non-Christians. But for us, the kind of, of honesty before the Lord is the first step to the freedom from sin and the freedom from guilt that God longs for us to have and He's provided for us through the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. Again, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful, He's just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The story is told one day of Frederick the Great, he was the king of Prussia, visited a prison and talked to each one of the inmates. There was endless talk about innocence and misunderstood motives and of exploitation. Finally, the king stopped at a cell of a convict who remained silent. Well, remarked Frederick, I suppose you're an innocent victim too. No, sir, I'm not, replied the man. I'm guilty and I deserve my punishment. Turning to the warden, the king said, Here, release this rascal before he corrupts all these fine innocent people in here. <laughs> Proverbs 28:13 says, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Listen, Jesus is here today not to condemn you, but to save you. And if you've never had your sin forgiven, I pray that you do not leave here without turning to Jesus, acknowledging your sin, asking for the forgiveness, confessing it, and getting saved this morning. Don't leave here without getting saved. But maybe you are born again, you're here and you're saved, and, and through even this message, because this message hits me first before it hits you guys, there's some conviction. Not condemnation. God doesn't condemn. But maybe there's some conviction of the Holy Spirit in your heart and in your life, and you're going, you know, Lord, maybe that's why some of my prayers aren't being answered. You know, the Bible teaches if we don't love our wives and nurture our wives the way we should, man, your, your prayers will be hindered. Maybe there's some, some things in your life that's hindering your prayers. That communication with God is cut off because of that sin. And not only are you condemning yourself because of it, but also you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So you're getting it from both sides. You need to stop. 
and confess it to the Lord. And say, Lord, I'm sorry. I know it's wrong. I know it goes against you. It goes against your word. Please forgive me. And then make those changes in your life. Go to the person maybe you've offended. Ask to be forgiven by them. If it's your wife or it's your husband, ask for forgiveness. Tell them, I want to love you as Christ loved the church. I'm sorry, would you forgive me? I want to submit to you as unto the Lord. Please forgive me. I haven't done that. God calls us to examine our hearts. It's a heart checkup. He calls us to examine our hearts, look at our hearts, see where we're at, then make those changes. You know, what good, I mean, I confess I have a bad heart. My doctor, he checks my heart. He goes, yeah, you got a clog here, you got a clog here, but hey, go on home, have a good time, eat some more chips, have some more fries. Doesn't do that. It's okay. Here's what we need to do. I've examined your heart. You need to make these changes. We need to fix this. That's what God's calling us to do this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for your word because, Lord, it is convicting. Not condemning, but convicting. And, Lord, as we look at these things, we recognize that maybe we haven't been loving our brothers and sisters in deed and in truth, just in word only. Maybe, Lord, in our relationship with you, it's been one of of posing, faking, putting on a church face, but not really knowing you, Lord. And that's my prayer first and foremost. If there's anyone here, Lord, that doesn't know you, they don't have their sin forgiven, they're not born again today, Lord, would you especially speak to their heart. Help them to see their need for you. Help them to turn from their sin and turn to you this morning. God, you will forgive. You'll take away the guilt, the shame, uh, Lord, the embarrassment of sin, you'll forgive them. You'll, you'll relieve them of the burden that's on their shoulders and you'll give them your Holy Spirit and pro- the promise of heaven and eternity with you. So Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, they would not leave this place without coming to you and asking for the forgiveness of their sin and making that commitment to you. For those of us that do know you, Lord, is there anything in our lives that is hindering our prayer life, Lord, that is getting in the way of of the assurance that we have with you, Lord, some sin in our life. Lord, we want to confess it. Lord, maybe we're, we're condemning ourselves, and you don't condemn us. You're greater than our hearts. You don't condemn us, but maybe there's some conviction of your Holy Spirit that you've hit us on. Lord, help us to confess it to you. Call out for what it is, it's sin, it's sin against a holy God. Lord, forgive us, cleanse us, wash us clean, we pray. And then help us to do what is right, Lord, from this moment on, this morning on. Make those changes that need to be made. To you be the glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.